Hello, and welcome to another episode of Flaming Pinto's production of Play Me Tape, a show where we delve song by song into the music that means something. I'm joined, as always, by my good pal, Darren. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and my name is Jake. How you doing? Doing well. Excited for today's podcast. You've got a, a big, flaming Pinto choice. This is not a song that's going to fly under the radar. This is a big one. I'm looking forward to it because it's not a song I know a tremendous amount about. It's not a band I even know that much about, if I'm being honest. I have a couple of their albums, but mm, for the most part, I don't know them all that well. I'm going to say the same thing. I don't actually know them all that well. A couple of the albums I know, but the information is out there. Yeah, if, for sure. If you're interested in anything about this band two-second Google search, and you've pretty much got more than you can handle for a couple of days. The internet is awesome. It really is for stuff like this. But having said that, you really have to filter through what you're reading. Oh, for sure. Because there's so much information and so much conflicting information on things that happen. Before we actually get started on the album, I just wanted to get a little, little bit of business out of the way first. I got a text message from someone, and I'm not sure if it was their intent or if it was the the point. I don't know if we had communicated it badly or if it was just the wording that she chose to use, but <laughs> she kind of talked about how, how amused she was about the Paul stories that we had told in two of our right. previous episodes. And in her text message, she had actually used the, the phrase passed out. And I feel like we've done old Paul a little bit of a disservice. And I'm not sure we explained it well enough. Paul was a friend of ours. I met him through university. He was on my floor in the dorm. And then he moved in with us and a fourth guy named James. Paul was a real good guy. I mean, didn't have a bad word to say about anybody. Just a good hearted person. Just sleepy. <laughs> he was just a very tired, tired man. But the point is, again, good hearted guy, give you the shirt off his back. Really, really good dude. He was not pass out drunk at these shows. And this happened consistently. This happened, I think, on three different occasions, if I'm remembering correctly. And this is not an instance where our sloppy drunk friends <laughs> got blitzed and we needed to take care of him and get him home because he was such a mess. That's not it at all. It, it's still something of a mystery looking back on it. Realistically, I, I definitely hope the guy didn't have a respiratory issue or, <laughs> yeah, you know, a he very well may issue. have. He very well may have. But the only thing that we could ascertain is that these were all shows in small, packed venues where quality of air may have been diminished by people exhaling around him, I guess, because he was fainting. He fainted at three separate shows. He did not pass out from drunkenness. He fainted and he would go down and we would get him outside and get him some air and he would be okay. <laughs> He'd be a little embarrassed. He'd say He'd... sorry for falling down. Or... <laughs> yeah. I hope I didn't ruin the show. Yeah. And typically he wouldn't be able to really remember why or how it happened it would just happen and we'd have to keep an eye on him because yeah. you never knew and when paul was going down and we sort of joked about what could have set him off but as far as we know it was just it was a dude who was susceptible to the poor air quality in small packed clubs that's the only thing we got that's all we know in discussing this <laughs> we talked about it we realized 
I mean, just about every single night we were hanging out in the living room on TV. Yeah. You would look over and Paul would be sleeping. Yeah. So I don't know that he just didn't sleep well at night. <laughs> yeah. Or could... I don't know because so often you'd, you'd either come downstairs or you'd be sitting there and you'd, you'd be laughing at a show and you'd look over. Oh, geez, Paul's asleep. Paul's faded I, dead away. I better not wake him. Didn't matter. <laughs> we could have full on conversations around him. Didn't care. And no alcohol involved, no drugs involved. Yeah. Just there's Paulie. He's tired. The only thing that really came out of it was that I kind of wanted to sit on the couch. Yeah. And you couldn't because he was. <laughs> He's laid out. So. <laughs> I'd also like to point out, we keep referring to Paul in the past tense, and that's not because he's no longer with us. I mean, he's no longer physically with us because we don't know what happened to that guy. But as far as we know, he's still alive and well, and we'll, until we're told otherwise, we'll continue that assumption. But he's just someone that we've lost touch with. And in fact, everyone I've asked about his whereabouts or where he ended up nobody seems to know he seems to have completely gone off the grid so it's a mystery so paul if you happen to be listening by some miracle and you hear this get in touch let us know where you are anyone else who might happen to be listening if you see a guy who's super nice his name happens to be paul (laughs) maybe let him know we're looking for him i think he's with the sherpas on in nepal somewhere there's some glamorous thing that Paul was out there doing. It's funny you say that because he was named after a Sherpa. I know. His middle name. He was named I after know. Tenzing Norgay. Yes. Love that. Anyway. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Enough Paul discussion. I just Enough felt Paul. I had to, to write that wrong and correct that unfortunate <laughs> impression yeah. we may or may not have given off. Yeah. I don't know that we've given off an impression of us being drunk idiots, but... I don't think that was the case. I think oh, they were I, fairly I, responsible. I also don't like the giving off the impression that we're laughing at this, <laughs> yeah, this poor drunk guy. Yeah, and I think we were quite responsible in helping him out, and we can feel good about that. And I think he felt good about it that he knew his friends had his back if he bailed, or when when he bailed. When he bailed, because it was won't say pretty much a given. Was, yeah, it was a given. All right, enough about Paul. I have a question for you. I don't know if it, it's a getting to know you question. It's just a basic question and it sort of relates to where we're going with this episode what is your memory of early grade school elementary school in general in terms of how you felt about it did you like it did you enjoy being there did you have lots of friends did you look forward to going right i see where you're headed with this but i won't spoil it from what i remember early childhood grade school i kind of liked. I didn't have a huge problem with it. I'd much rather be at home. I'd much rather be playing. I'd much rather be outside. But through most of grade school, I had a decent circle of friends and I was happy to be with my friends wherever they happened to be, even if that was in a school setting. I don't remember being a particularly great student, so I don't think I was ever going to fit right in in a school setting. And I don't think I was ever going to be, you know, the teacher's pet by any stretch. But I certainly didn't hate school the way I knew some other kids did. But by the same token, I sure appreciated summer when it came. And I loved the summertime. I loved the unstructured freedom of the summertime. It was a different time. Playdates didn't really exist and structured play wasn't a thing. (laughs) So, you know, for the two and a half months or whatever it was, the 10 weeks that we got, it was complete chaos. It was just pandemonium, child pandemonium. 
that more or less, I think, probably covers it. But I'm sure you're going to contrast this with <laughs> your own experience sharply. I can remember back to starting school and, and going to kindergarten and looking forward to that and sitting around in a circle and the teacher talking and stuff and enjoying that. There was no responsibilities other than being there. And that was pretty much your parents that took care of that and made sure you were there. There was no schoolwork or pressure to do anything, you know, yeah. you were coloring and gluing. And, and in most <laughs> cases, it, it was fun hanging with your friends and laughing you, and joking. Were you a paste eater? Did you eat the paste? I don't think so. I may have been. I, I don't know. Maybe that's um, why you can't remember. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It was all high on delicious lead-based paint. <laughs> so I enjoyed that part of it. And it, of course, it was only half a day. So right. that was beauty. Children listening, ask your parents about that. It was one year of kindergarten, and it was a half a day. Yeah. Different times. It was excellent. So grade one comes along, and here I am trotting into school in grade one, just thinking, this is awesome. It's cakewalk. And all of a sudden, blammo, here we are having to actually do assignments. And even things like sitting quietly, which wasn't my bag. Right. I'm sure my grade one teacher was quite frustrated with me. But also, you know, you were with your friends and stuff, so you still got to have a good time. But I really started to develop a dislike for being there. I was very often bored and very often frustrated with what I was being told to do or write about or talk about or whatever. And just being told to be quiet all the time Yep, really started to get to me. By the time I hit grade two... I wanted to punch the teacher. <laughs> Do you think it's possible that you had an undiagnosed attention deficit situation? Yeah. I mean, it's, that, it's, that really it's wasn't a thing. extremely possible. That really that wasn't was a thing case. when we were that age. It was no. Whether it was an existing known issue or whether it was, there was not yet terminology or nomenclature for it. I don't remember ADD or ADHD being even discussed until we were, I think, in about late high school or maybe even past high school. Yeah. When that started to become a newsworthy item or a topic of pop culture discussion. But it'd be interesting if that diagnosis were available more in a, in a more widespread way, if you would have fallen into that category. I don't know. I just, the only thing I knew, I remember in grade two, at one point, I just kind of freaked out. And I said to my mom, I'm not going. <laughs> and I think we even had a school trip or something. And I said, nope, not going. Don't like it. Don't like my teacher. Don't like anything we're doing. And teacher wasn't particularly nice. I had a situation one time where I took it upon myself to write a story that she had asked us to write in cursive. Right. Even though we'd never been taught this, it was just something that I had seen. And I was super proud of this. I got a couple of the letters wrong. Sure. But the teacher just ripped into me, made me an example, pointed it out. How dare you do this, which just solidified my position on school. And dude, this is great too. Those things which seem to an adult like such a minor interaction. Well, I had to bring this to everyone's attention and I had to talk about what student X did. You know, that can have an unbelievably long-lasting impression on the student who is being singled out. I certainly have yeah. those memories for sure of things where you were brought front and center and called to task for something that you had done and it seemed like such a minor thing. But in the moment, whoo. Dude, I'm 47. Yeah. I'd still punch her in the mouth if I saw her. 
<laughs> it had that much of an effect on me for the rest of my school life right. that don't you dare step out of the box. Don't stand out. Don't do anything don't, different. Don't do anything different because you're going to pay for it. You can and imagine. You're going to pay for it in public humiliation. Yeah. Just imagine that. You can imagine my glee. Grade two, we have to go do an assembly. And I don't even know why we're there. Don't much care. Until I realize it's a lip sync competition for the older grades. I went to a school that was kindergarten to grade eight. Right. So these were all grade eight kids doing lip sync songs. And to a grade two, a grade eight seems like a hulking brute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they seem like they're mature 20-year-olds, you know? But sure. I remember sitting almost in the front row because obviously they put you in grade one, grade two, grade three, all in rows. So I'm up near the front and I don't remember any of the other songs that day, but I sure remember when these guys come out and start doing Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. And I hear, we don't need no education. <laughs> I didn't jump up and run around screaming at the time, but boy, did I ever want to. Did you to. ever want to, for sure? Because it had such an effect on me. Here was somebody speaking my language. Yeah. And I couldn't have been happier about it. And I swear, I sang that song every day, trudged off to school. I didn't know who Pink Floyd was. I didn't know what, I didn't even know what the song was. About. I didn't know the rest of the words. Yeah. I just knew that that line was the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my life. Sure. And for a kid that was having a really hard time at school, it was an escape with somebody. Hey, I'm not the only one. When we talk about making an emotional connection to a song and a song resonating, this is one that, to this day, I mean, the fact that I don't have a lot of childhood memories, I don't have a lot of school memories, but the things that, you know, I was just saying that are associated with hearing the song are quite vivid in my mind. It quite clearly had a gigantic effect on me. Yeah. I mean, I know the song about like boarding schools in England. Very different than an elementary school in Brampton, Ontario. Sure. Just a, sorry, just as a side note, before yeah. we get into the discussion about the nuts and bolts of the song, do you want to play the song? Yeah, yeah, let's play the song. Let's play the song. You're just a little break here. 
Okay, well, that was another brick in the wall from Pink Floyd's album, The Wall. I'm similar to you in the sense that I first heard this song in elementary school. But obviously the meaning of the song overall was completely and utterly lost on me. Most songs that I was listening to at that point were whatever was making up the hits radio of the time. I think prior to this, you know, the catchiest song that I when asked that I could tell you was eight six seven five three oh nine. Oh, nice! <laughs> you know, I Beauty. think it was around that time when I first heard it. And you know, when you take a lyrically complex song like that, a composition like that, and you stretch out a narrative over the length of six minutes, or or God, even over the length of an entire album, which this album was. This is a very, very highly regarded concept album. It's usually in the top two or three concept albums if you were to ask people the best concept albums this will always come in the top three or the top two and so not knowing any of that i picked up on exactly the same lyrics that you did and it was one of those things that we sort of chanted after class or yeah or whatever it was a relatively recent discovery i'm not sure we heard it whatever year grade three would have been for me i'm not sure we heard it when it was brand new and getting radio play i really don't know i couldn't say I do know that between the accented singing and the words of a broader vocabulary than my own at the time, there was going to be stuff about that song that I didn't understand. The main chorus is, we don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Could not parse what was being said in that line. I didn't hear thought for some reason. I, I thought it was the word was forced, <laughs> which I guess still makes sense or applies in some way if you're yeah. talking about that rigid structure and you're under forced control. It's redundant, but I guess it still makes sense to some degree. And then there's the line, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. Well, I didn't know the word sarcasm. That yeah. was not in my lexicon at that age in grade three. I heard that line not as dark sarcasm said with a chorus of prep school kids in the UK. Dark sarcasm. To me, it sounded like Dr. Hazard. I thought that was a supervillain. I assumed that there was some no, sort of a... No Dr. Hazard in the classroom. There's no Dr. Hazard in the classroom. <laughs> There's no supervillain in the classroom. That's literally what I thought that lyric was saying. I, I was fairly certain I wasn't correct. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't matter. But I had no other viable lyric to put into its place and nobody else seemed to know what was being said it wasn't until i think i was in summer camp that i really gave you know this would have been grade seven or grade eight that i really gave it much thought And there was a guy that was in my cabin who had told me about doing a project at school on that album the idea that someone had taken lyrics from a song and were applying to those lyrics the same criticism that we gave to the other material that we looked at in class. You know, usually we were given fairly unfortunate, fairly dull 
book choices based on the province's mandates of what yeah. we should be reading. And those were never wildly popular hits with the kids. Even through high school, there was always a lot of eye rolling when you found out what the next segment was on and what the book was that you were going to be reading and studying yeah. and being critical of. But the idea that someone had taken the lyrics to a song or the lyrics to an album and studied them in depth blew my mind. And then when he started to talk about the underlying meaning of the album, mind blown because it seemed like a from my grade three memories and from my foggy grade three understanding and grasp of the song, it really seemed like a world away from this silly classroom protest song that I would probably, if anything, liken to Alice Cooper's School's Out for Summer more than yeah. a work with a lot more depth to it, which it actually had. Those are the memories that I take away from it. We actually saw the movie together, you and I. We rented it and saw it on video. Yep. That may or may not have been my first time seeing it. And I've only seen the movie a handful of times, but it certainly isn't one that you forget easily. But anyway, back to you. One of the questions I was going to ask you, if you've seen the movie, I don't even know that I understood it all that well. You know, listening to <laughs> you the did, album. You didn't, and, you didn't and remember watching, watching it with me, you jerk? I don't remember a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing personal. <laughs> My brain is just full of other things, I guess. I don't know. I have a very poor memory. I have a very faint recollection. But the point is, I didn't understand really what I was watching. Right. And even the line, another brick in the wall. Yeah. I didn't know what that meant until... It very much later in life, when you become an adult and you start to realize that you are building your own wall yeah, and all these experiences in your life are bricks, it seems pretty simple now in looking at it that way, but I didn't get it for a long, long time. Yeah. And when I did, it was a revelation. I, Holy crap. This is what I've been listening to. Some of the other songs on the album are incredibly powerful songs. Yeah, And if you watch the movie with a young Bob Geldof <laughs> yeah, as, that's right. as Pink, you see the struggles that he's going through in the movie. I just saw it as, I, I don't even know that I liked it all that much when I first saw it, but I saw it a I, few more times after that and really, really liked the movie. I don't think you did. If I'm remembering no. correctly, I don't think you did. So first of all, there is some very disturbing imagery in that movie. I don't just mean the very obvious Nazi imagery, which is there and yeah. is rampant. But there's also, I think the scene that stays with me the most clearly is when he started to shave and then he starts to cut himself. And there's that sequence in the bathroom where there's the yeah. self-harm. That was a tough watch for both of us, I think. I think it was just the two of us watching that movie if there was someone else there. I don't recall. And if they... <laughs> If there was someone else there and they're listening, hey, sorry. But pretty sure it was just the two of us. And I'm pretty sure we came away. That was both of our first viewings of that. And it was either very late high school or just after high school. And with no background on it, other than this discussion I had had in grade seven, another kid, there's a lot of metaphor. There is a lot of imagery. It flips back and forth into and out of animation. So it's a really, really ambitious movie overall. I think it's probably considered by most people to be the best translation of concept album to film that we yeah. have. I think some people might cite Tommy, but I just learned <laughs> from a friend of mine that's a, a Who fan that 
the movie Tommy is sort of looked at as a disappointing translation of an absolutely hmm. stellar album. I've seen the movie Tommy numerous times, and I don't have any real emotional connection to the album, per se, with the exception of Pinball Wizard being awesome. But there are a lot of people that have complaints about that movie as a translation, unlike Quadrophenia, for example, which I think is considered a far better translation of the subject matter. This is considered just a, an exceptional translation of The Wall as a work. It's very metaphorical. The thought was when the album was made that this was going to be made into a movie. For sure. It was already thought about in the songwriting and, and in the production of the album that eventually they would make this into a movie. I think they did a fantastic job. It's funny that I didn't like it the first time. I didn't even know that I liked it the second time. Right. I think as I matured, got a little bit wiser and started to pay more attention to the meanings and the things that were going on in the movie, it just became very clear to me what was going on and how sad it was. And then to tie that all into my thoughts as a grade two student, belting it out on the way home. Right. We it's don't a sharp contrast. Education. Yeah. It's certainly one that sticks with me. I love that album, start to finish. I've listened to it many times. Obviously, Dark Side of the Moon is another really popular album. Floyd is one of those gigantic bands that somebody could ask me, hey, do you like Pink Floyd? And I'll say, sure, I do. You yeah, know, I, I like this song or I like that song. Or Dark Side of the Moon is a great album, but there's some songs on it that I don't like. Okay, it's, yeah. It, you know, and maybe that's a burnout thing. Or, it's not a dinger. Yeah, it's not a dinger. There's some, <laughs> there's some duds for me on that album. The Wall, I can never get me, past money. Me either. I'm not a fan. The Wall, to me, is a dinger. There's no doubt. There's not a bad song on that album. I listened to it on like a double CD. Yeah, it's, it was a big double gatefold record. Yeah. That opened up and was this huge, impressive piece of art. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> held two giant vinyl discs in it. It was really something. Was it more than two discs on vinyl? Good question. I never had the record. I, I remember seeing it because I loved the art, which was literally just a white wall. Yeah. And it said the wall on it, like spray painted in black. I had the opportunity to go see them in concert in 1994. You saw Floyd live? Yeah, I saw them at I the CNE. I never saw Floyd live. That's interesting. At Exhibition Stadium. My How was the show? Well, that's the thing. My brother had gone. I remember my brother even going with him. He had found tickets, you know, scalper tickets in the classifieds of the Toronto Sun. And I remember driving with him. Well, that takes you back. Finding yeah, through exactly. the classifieds of the paper. Yeah. Oof. And I remember going Dark with him to, to get the tickets and how excited he was. And of course, I was pretty young at the time and not really into that. And they were not cheap from what I remember. Right. So he ended up going to the concert and coming back and saying, and I think he will say to this day that that's the greatest concert he's ever seen. Right. I saw them in 94, you know, they came back and he's like, we have to go. This will be the, the most amazing show you'll ever see. And that may have been a mistake because I went in with huge expectations. And I think at that point, the band had sort of split, right? David Gilmore and Roger Waters had kind of gone their own way. There were separate ways. Yeah. yeah so this was Roger Waters and, and Nick Mason in 94. And I certainly wasn't blown away. Now, that may also be 
exhibition stadium if you ever saw a show there the stage was so far away they looked like ants yes and the sound right you're you're not getting great sound up there so was it a fun time sure i i remember that was the first time that the smell of marijuana was just (laughs) so so incredible around me yeah kind of wondering you know are these guys going to get caught (laughs) you know i was (laughs) i was kind of worried but I don't have much else from that show because I don't think it was all that good. And I do remember the guy saying afterwards, that was no 88, that's for sure. Really? Yeah. I talked about in a previous episode not wanting to see bands later on, you know, in the later stages of their, for sure. yeah. their careers. And this is my thought about Pink Floyd is I have this memory of this kind of lackluster show. Now, if I was fourth row floors... Maybe it would have been a different different story, right? Yeah, maybe this is a different conversation right now. But it didn't leave me hugely impressed. Who would they have replaced Gilmore with on guitar? The tour that I saw was, I believe it was the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour. Okay. I think that's what it was. I know a subsequent tour, they actually took Eric Clapton out. Oh, wow. For a short period of time. But I think he only did part of the tour. A subset of the dates, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know who it was that they had. David Gilmore as a guitarist is He's, pretty highly regarded. Yeah. And one of the reasons is I've heard it said many times with him that less is more. Yep. He's a guy that he's not shredding anything. He's not wailing away on it. He's not, you know, hammering away on the strings. He's pretty efficient in his his choices. It and, is. And it is yeah. spectacular to hear. That was one of the things that I thought of on the re-listen. So when I re-listened to the song prior to the episode, one of the things that struck me first was in part two, when you get to the guitar solo, it's not complex as far as I can tell. And I, I don't play guitar, so I don't know. Someone could argue this with me and, and set the record straight. What I do know is that it seems like it's far more about conveying an emotionality than it is about displaying technical prowess. Yeah, He's not, I would agree. It's not a run of a thousand different notes tapped or played very technically, very quickly. You know the guitar solo that I would liken it to? Funkadelic Maggot Brain. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> I'm not. Seriously, if you're familiar with the opening track on Maggot Brain, which I think is called Maggot Brain. I really thought about including that as one of my picks because it's heartbreaking. It is a long, beautiful guitar solo, and it is just stunning. But it's the same vibes. It's conveying an emotion, and it really packs a powerful punch, but it doesn't blow you away with its technicality. It blows you away with where he's taking you to from an emotional standpoint, just with the guitar as an instrument. Yeah. It's incredible. And if you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. I remember coming across a guy doing a cover of it on YouTube and it, just some random guy. And it just was, it's such an incredible guitar piece that it's a frizzable song. Yeah. I absolutely get chills during that song. I don't know that I get chills during the Floyd song, but I certainly get that same sense when I listen to the solo where he's taking you to that place strictly through that instrument. And it's incredible. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, 
big part of the band for a long time and the two of them were fighting and there's a million different stories about that on the internet if you want to go chase that stuff down i'm not gonna get deep into it i think it was a shame that the two guys just couldn't get along because they made such incredible music together they literally just tolerated each other and then they got into all kinds of crazy rights battles and things like that afterwards who could use the name and david gilmore had essentially signed away the rights to the music and using the name and everything and uh, didn't even really realize it at the time and kind of found out later on yeah and it was a real punch in the gut for him i think at that point uh, that was kind of late 80s early 90s i think that was it for the band and i don't know that they ever recovered produce material on the on the same yeah on the same level it's too bad yeah but well i say yeah but i don't know (laughs) i literally have not heard any of pink floyd's later offerings i have a smattering of their early stuff i have dark side of the moon i do not own a copy of the wall you and should. it's not even one, uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely should for some, another reason that I'm, I'm going to bring up for the Toronto connection. Yes, the Bob Ezrin connection. Bob Ezrin will be coming up in future episodes when I talk about Kiss. Yes. Kiss. <laughs> yeah, Destroyer. Shh. Yeah, no. And no, not just Destroyer. Yeah, no. I know. Don't well, mention any album title. Well, listen to this. One of the things about Bob Ezrin in, in the, producing this album is that he actually told, I cannot even imagine what this scene was like. He told the members of Pink Floyd, you guys need to go out into the clubs and and listen to disco Yeah, so you can get a a catchier sound for this stuff. It's even said that there is a little bit of disco influence in these songs. I can't hear it. Maybe that's me trying to block it out. Right. I, I also don't dislike disco. It's just I don't hear it in this stuff. And it, but it had to be. Come on, <laughs> come on, Pink Floyd. Hey, Pink Floyd, go out in the clubs and listen to some disco, and and then come back to me and tell me what you've learned. Knowing what I know about Bob Ezrin and where uh, his career took him and what he brought to the table when he came in to do albums, I'm inclined to trust that he had an idea a place where he was going. But on the surface, this absolutely sounds like one of those stories where a studio suit comes in and just sort of says to the group, hey, that Dark Side of the Moon one, it was like a hit or whatever, but (laughs) I think we can do better than that. (laughs) You know what I mean? You certainly get the sense going in that he's this out-of-touch douche (laughs) that waltzed in and wanted to call the shots but more often than not with his stuff you know a lot of that came from a place of having a clear direction a clear artistic vision and on the albums on a lot of the albums i shouldn't say all but on a lot of the albums that he produced he's as creative a partner as one of the band members yeah he really inserts himself into the artistic vision of the album in as much as a given band will allow him to do so and we'll talk about what that meant for Kiss when we get to the Kiss yeah, cool. segments and the Kiss albums. But good Toronto boy, made good, and was, you know, has just created some absolutely stellar albums. Yeah, in terms think, of this one, I mean, think about the time. This album was 1979. That's kind of disco's peak. Yeah. So it does make sense that they want to sell albums. Yeah. So let's go capture this sound, and hopefully people like it. 
I don't know that he necessarily got along with them very well during these recording sessions. <laughs> well, he didn't get along uh, with Kiss very well either. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, Roger Waters pretty much an egomaniac and figured he was really the only reason why Pink Floyd was successful. So uh, you were fighting with that as well. I don't think it was Bob Ezrin's fault. I think there was really one guy in the room that was causing all the trouble. I think it would be very difficult to create an album that was as successful, not just in the short term, but in the long term. You know how long Dark Side of the Moon was on the charts. Yeah, That was an album that still holds a record for how long it sat on the charts because it sat on the charts for hundreds and hundreds of weeks. Years. It was on the Billboard charts for years. I swear to you, I think I remember reading, you know, it had finally dipped off the charts in the 90s, (laughs) the late 90s. Crazy. When you're dealing with something that's that well-known and becomes that big a cultural phenomenon, what does that do to your sense of self-importance, your sense of your ego? I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what nightmares Fleetwood Mac were (laughs) after rumors became the greatest album ever produced and the biggest selling album ever produced and on and on and on. Not only were there relationships breaking up and falling apart anyway, but what would that have been like to dump all of that? Well, yeah, and cocaine. <laughs> yeah. To dump all of that money, fame, critical acclaim, and cocaine onto the situation. It must have just been like a gas fire. Yeah. And I have to assume that it would be a very, very strange difficult thing to come through the experience of creating a work as widely enjoyed and appreciated as dark side of the moon and not have been altered by it. Yeah. I don't know personalities in the beginning, but there were some major issues early on that just were blown up because of that and yeah, yeah. egos getting and, in the way. And, and they were a troubled band from the get go. Yeah. They started off with Sid Barrett being a major part of that band and his departure under conditions that weren't great. Fortunately, Sid Barrett's mental state wasn't optimal. Was it during the wall or was it during Dark Side? It was sometime later where he appeared in the studio and he was physically so different. He had lost a lot of his hair and he had put on a great deal of weight that he appeared in the studio and the other band members didn't initially recognize him. It took them a moment to realize who was standing in front of him. Ouch. Yeah. So they've had this history of inner conflict and directions and visions conflicting and contrasting. I'm not even someone that knows much about the band, but I know that. (laughs) Yeah, it's too Um, bad. Kind of going back to the whole grade two connection and the whole we don't need no education stuff. It really became comical even when I had children. Right. (laughs) And they kind of started to have the same feelings I did about school Mm -hmm. and I had to sit them down and say, no, it's important. Got to go through it. Yeah. Got to fight through this. Can't be not going to eat. Like it's, it's really, I felt like such a hypocrite doing that. Yeah. But you know, you go through life and you realize school is important. I know that now. And I wonder if this song had such an impact on me that it actually changed my trajectory on, yeah. in life in terms of how I was performing in school. I was a terrible student, but I do wonder if, <laughs> if it changed my pathway and set me on a little bit different path in terms of what I was going to do at subsequent years at school. 
if it did, it worked well, just, yeah. just not in a good way. How did the music change? We've talked about this before, and we're working on an episode upcoming of songs where revelations change yeah. the meaning, where you have a revelation about a song and its inherent meaning suddenly now means something entirely different. How did knowledge of the underlying meaning of the song and the album as a whole change your experience of the song? Did it diminish the impact of the song? Did it increase it for you? Does it mean anything different now? As I aged, I started to realize that I probably shouldn't have hated school so much. Right. (laughs) And so those words meant a lot less. And then when I had children, they meant even less than that. And it became more about building that wall. Yeah. And that school, and in this case, the the UK boarding schools were just another brick in the wall in that experience. It did change for sure. Yeah. We sort of agreed before this episode that we didn't want to go too deep into the underlying depth of this album because yeah. it had been done. It's been done. It's been so done frequently. a million times. Yeah. And there's so much that you can read so easily about the underlying context of the album, but that specifically, that's a, it's not a new metaphor and it's not one maybe that they coined when I was, Younger, I read a book by a guy named Robert Anton Wilson, and he talked about, he used the term reality tunnel. It wasn't the exact same, but what he was talking about was how your own personal journey through life narrows the focus of how you perceive the world into this reality tunnel. And it, to some degree, blocks you off from the rest of the world and everyone's reality tunnel is going to be different because it's entirely shaped by their own backgrounds and experiences. And I think there's a stronger message in this album in terms of they use a wall to represent not just the reality tunnel, but closing himself off from the rest of society and lashing out to some degree and walling himself up for his own personal, his own inner protection. So there's maybe a little bit more going on here. He's dealing with abuse. He's dealing with the loss of a father. He's dealing with a domineering mother. Uh, there's a lot. It wasn't a new metaphor, I don't think, at the time that they wrote this album. However, I think it's an excellent expression of that. I think the lyrics are incredible when you sit down and you go through them. I think that it expresses it in a way that's, despite the length of the album, fairly succinct there is a story to be told and it's through the telling of the story that you understand the build and where he gets to in terms of his own personal wall but as you say there's just a tremendous amount written <laughs> there is there is we're not subject we're not talking about anything new here i wanted to convey how it made me feel at the time it has changed over time and it may even there may be even an underlying tone here of how impressionable young kids are and how how you can be changed by music and hearing things. And absolutely. Can you still put on this album for pure enjoyment or does it, Oh yeah. Does it bother you? No, more so now than ever. It's incredible. Yeah. You're away from this. You're away from the stress of school. (laughs) Yes. And like I said, I I've realized how important education is and how I was wrong, just flat out wrong. Not to say that my feelings were wrong, but to really grasp on and almost use that as an excuse. Well, look at this guy. He hated school. You know, to he me, okay. to me, there was a, a choir of, of kids singing. Yeah. And they were all on my team, too. Yeah. 
it really stuck with me as a kid. And those feelings are still very, very vivid for me and very real. But I'm glad that I've been able to sort of figure out over the time the right and wrong of it and, right. and understand what it meant. So on that note, <laughs> I think we're capable of sitting here and talking about this for another hour without too much trouble, but we better not do that. So right. we should probably <laughs> wrap, it up. Yeah, wrap it up. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about the choice I've made for next episode. I know you know what it is already. And you've it's had a, a chance one. to listen to it. It's a complete departure in a couple of different ways from my previous choice. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So I hope everyone tunes in for that. I'm not going to say what it is yet. We'll wait till the episode in question before revealing that. But as always, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please consider following us and tell your friends, tell everyone you know. Until next time, keep listening to music that means something and always listen with an open mind. End communication. <laughs>